Thank you so much for joining us on Discover Economics, How Did I Get Here? So just who or what is an economist? There's an economic lens for every topic that you can possibly think of. The economists in our podcast are motivated by a desire to change the world and their belief that better data and better understanding are key to achieving this change. I'm very excited and enthusiastic about learning more about what economics can offer us as a society and what are the options when it comes to careers for young people. It's been an absolute delight to do this series and to learn more, to indulge my nosiness and to get to ask so many questions. The questions I'm hoping you as listeners will also have wanted to ask. So thank you so much for listening. So in this episode, we've got Helen Hewson. Helen is a research officer at the London School of Economics, where she has contributed to research on tax policy, inequality, migration, including the work of the UK Wealth Tax Commission. Previously, she worked for five years at the Reserve Bank of Australia on labour market and international developments and co-authored working papers on household responses to monetary policy and the market for overnight cash in Australia. Helen has an MSc in economics from the University College London and I already have so many questions. Usually that's what happens when I read out someone's bio and I think, oh, so many different things here. So welcome, Helen. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It's a pleasure. So I'm going to dig into my nosiest questions first. I hope that's okay. Could you tell us a little bit about what were you like at school? First of all, where did you go to school and what were you like as a student? Well, um, I'm Australian. So I went to school in a place called Geelong, which is about an hour outside Melbourne. And I was a total nerd at school. I, you know, studied hard. I did lots of math subjects and lots of music. I was very lucky to grow up in a, a household that valued and put a lot of emphasis on education. So it was a big part of my life. Brilliant. Now you mentioned music there and I know that this is something we just talked about just as we came on and I'm very glad you did. But singing is a big part of your life as well. So did that start at school then I'm presuming as you did your mixture of maths and music? It did. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm from a musical family. I've played piano since the age of five and I've been singing in a choir since the age of 10. And nowadays I combine my work in economics with some singing as well. So I sing professionally around the place, mostly as part of um, as of choirs or small consorts. I love it. And what's it's interesting because I did music at higher or A-level in England. I remember that one of the things I loved about it was the a little bit of the mathematics about it, like which which isn't the thing that appeals to everyone. But that was the bit because I started it quite late, actually, in in school. I didn't do it from a very young age. So I was kind of jumping in and I was like finding the bits I was familiar with. And and to be able to look at the sheet music and all that side of things and look at the patterns of it all. So I can definitely see how like the both sides might be really appealing. Definitely. I mean, I think there's a lot about music and particularly in the way that it's notated, that's very mathematical or people kind of also think about it as a language, which in a way maths is as well, you know, a kind of just a, a way of communicating different ideas in, in a sort of agreed on set of codes. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely all of those aspects to music as well. Amazing. And I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but I suppose as well that that kind of kind of mixed discipline, if you like, has come up in previous interviews about being so important in economics because you've got all the data in one place and being able to look at things from different angles. And and of course, there's so much um, research goes into kind of early and younger, younger years education about the mix of arts and science and, and all the different disciplines and how it really helps with the outcomes, I suppose, in, in later life. Would you agree with that? Or have you found found that? Absolutely. I mean, like as an economist, I haven't done any sort of digging into it, so I can't give you an expert opinion on it. 
certainly the stuff that catches my attention as a musician. You know, there's a lot of studies to suggest that kids who have music as part of their activities at school do so much better, not just at music, but at English and maths and a whole bunch of other skills. It's it's really it's incredible skill development for um, for for building confidence in kids, for building kind of a camaraderie or learning how to work with others. And it just gives people so much expressive potential as well. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things I get that has also come up in some of these conversations is the importance, especially when we talk about diversity and economics, of if you are going to walk into a room where you are the only person who looks like you, the only person from your background walking into that room, that takes a certain amount of confidence. And if you're early on in your career or you've just graduated, or even if you're you know, trying to find out more just as you're leaving secondary school and you're not sure what you're going to do next, that there's a certain amount of presentation and confidence about walking into that room that I suppose things like music and dance and drama and, and those kinds of things might also be really helpful with. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, so mostly what I do now is working with other people, but there's certainly, you know, I have to go through situations all the time where as a singer, I'm on my own, either doing a a solo surrounded by the rest of the choir or going in for an audition. That's always on your own rather than with other people. So it's just having a lot of practice of the focus all being on you and having to deal with that's probably a good thing. Or something you just have to get used to if you want to get through a job interview, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And also like getting getting those thoughts forward. But again, I'll 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 pause and take a step back because as always I've jumped way ahead. So when you were at school, was economics a subject for you? Was it one of your main subjects? It was not something that was available to me as a as a study option at school. I think it is a subject, but in Victoria where I grew up, there's a lot of schools have a lot of flexibility in what subjects they choose to teach and it wasn't an option at my school. And I'm not sure I even would have chosen it if it was, to be honest. I went to university and did a uh, what, what's called a commerce degree, which is kind of anything from economics to marketing to management, basically all kind of aspects of, of business. I'm using sort of air quotes there, business, um, because of course, economics is not really about business, but that's just how it works at, this, at the university that I, I attended. And the only reason why I studied economics was because it was a compulsory first year subject. I thought I, I thought I, I thought I wanted to go in business, you know, into business and make a lot of money. And then I did my first economics class and I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. And I think way more useful than, than a lot of the other stuff that I was kind of learning about and definitely appealed to my kind of maths brain, but also appealed to me as kind of a way of, of looking at the world. So it was re- that was the only way that I discovered economics. It wasn't through school. It sort of helped that I'd done a bit of maths, but that only really became apparent several years down the track. It just sort of appealed to me, as, as I say, as a way of looking at the world. Wow. Well, that's really interesting. And again, not uncommon necessarily, I think, to people who end up in economics, because everyone we've spoken to has you know, a diversity of experience that's brought them to where they are. And it doesn't always include doing economics all through school. And some of them, it doesn't even involve doing economics until they're postgrad <laughs> for, for some mm. people. Absolutely. And it's interesting to me as an outsider, if you like, that the people I've spoken to, a big part of their success it seems to come from that kind of mixed building blocks, if you like, to what got them to the place um where they are now in economics and reading out your bio and as you could see my kind of so many questions as we're going through the different things that you've done you have done a lot of work that is I I suppose related to business I suppose but but it is separate like if we're looking at things like wealth tax inequalities and tax policy that's obviously big big subjects for for business leaders as well so although it may be you know, the economic side, when you first discovered it might have seemed quite different. Do you feel like your degree and 
how you kind of came to those things at the same time has influenced the route you've taken? I think so. I mean, I, probably the only thing that's in common with a lot of the work that I've done is is that it's sort of economics. It's kind of under this umbrella of economics. You know, I've worked in some quite, in while well, I was working in the Reserve Bank of Australia, so that's the equivalent of the Bank of England. It's a central bank. It's talking about monetary policy every, you know, every every month. What do we do with interest rates? Do we, do we raise interest rates? Do we lower interest rates? And that's just like the complete opposite end of economics from a lot of the stuff that I am doing now. It's, it's very mm. macro, very close to finance and and a lot of kind of that sort of world and I don't really do all that much of that anymore I do a lot of work on inequality and kind of thinking about more uh, sort of micro but not really micro stuff and kind of policy issues I guess economics can really encompass a whole range of different fields and different skills so yeah I think that the diversity of experience can be really really useful as well and what kind of led you from the Bank of Australia sort of Reserve Bank of Australia to kind of the, the next steps, like you said, into the inequality research and that and that side of things? I'm not sure I've got an inspiring story, to be honest. No, I, I, to I, <laughs> I, I, no I came over to study and I did a master's degree and I just found found this job that I, I have now at LSE working with a couple of academics on a whole range of issues, but usually with a core focus on tax. And they were looking for someone with the skills that I had, which I had developed through my work at the RBA. Well, that's okay. There's no pressure to have a, an inspiring story. Don't worry. I, it's funny. I was talking to someone the other day about, um, you know, when you go for a job interview and interview skills and how you have to be the most excited about this job that is right in front of you right now. And sometimes you're doing that interview because you just need to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some employers sometimes need to know that. That's the main part. Yeah. Yep. 100%. And I'm sure, I'm sure both teachers, parents and students listening will definitely, you know, relate to that. But students, please know that when you go for an interview, please act like it is the most exciting opportunity in front of you, whoever is interviewing you. Mm, <laughs> no matter really what. So uh, this is a difficult question and I don't mind if you want to loop back to it, but I've been asking all of the guests. So with your work so far, uh, and I say so far, because obviously you've got many, many, many decades, sorry, of <laughs> this, you know, of this in front of you. What would you say you're most proud of, like any of the programmes or projects you've been involved with to date? Um, I, I think there have been a few things that I'm proud of for different reasons. So being involved with the Wealth Tax Commission last year was really, really exciting piece of work. So for a little bit of background, this was um, the, the, a team of academics who basically said, you know, the, there's a global pandemic going on. We're in a really unprecedented situation. The government's spending a lot of money to try and keep everybody afloat. Um, not questioning whether or not that's a good thing or not. That was not a part of the remit. But probably there's going to be a lot of calls as the dust starts to settle about whether or a lot of calls for things like a wealth tax because it's sort of one of the things that came, that, that a lot of people like the idea of. You know, it sounds good. Let's tax the rich, um, make them pay more, etc. And they thought about it for a little bit and thought, well, this is a good idea. You know, it sounds like a great idea. But do we actually know that? Like, has anybody actually done any work? And when they started to dig into it, they thought, actually, nobody's really thought about whether this would work in the UK, in the UK context, since about the 70s. Like, there really hasn't been a big piece of work that said, oh, is this a good idea or not? So they thought, let's do that. You know, like, it wasn't kind of a, often economics, I think, can get accused of applying the same set of tools to any old subject and just kind of abstracting away from a lot of real life difficulties and that was definitely not the case with this project they had a whole bunch of practitioners you know like tax lawyers tax accountants really digging into the detail of like how would this work you know how if you're trying to tax somebody's wealth that's all very well if you look at the money that I have in the bank account you know or 
you know, taxing someone's house is, is it's a little bit difficult because you have to establish how much it's worth. But, you know, like there are pretty well established methods for doing this. But what about when you are trying to tax somebody's art collection? How much is that worth? Like what's the kind of base of the tax that you're applying it to? And how would you tax someone's business that they don't sell any share, you know, their private business that nobody else owns? You know, you can get wildly different valuations uh, around that. What? How do you tax a startup? Is it worth absolutely nothing now and it might be worth millions and millions of pounds in a couple of years time you know how do you tax it so all of these quite complicated questions that sort of exist at the um sort of almost at the boundary of economics and between economics and real life which sounds like a, an odd thing to say as an economist but i think anybody who's actually worked in economics probably understands sorry that's a really long-winded way of saying this no, is a really detailed really interesting piece of work and just being involved in in um seeing people getting involved in answering those questions was was really interesting yeah I guess there were even more questions that you could ask about that sort of thing that I than I realized before I even got started and that's always a really fun piece of work to be involved when you know the further in you get the more questions you have and the more interesting it gets I mean, that is really interesting because it's one of those things that, like you said, on the surface, everyone is quite enthusiastic about it. But this came up in our interview with Will Page, you know, the unintended consequences. And I think this is one of those areas where you have to be nervous of unintended consequences everywhere, obviously, especially when we're talking about monetary policy. But especially this, because people can be super enthusiastic about tax the rich. And Mm. look, I'm not Mm. against it. (laughs) however (laughs) like I said you're setting up policies that are about the way the whole population is taxed so there's also funny things that might happen along the way so I mean you talk about unintended consequences one of the other big questions is what's your tax base do you tax absolutely everything that everyone anyone owns you know anything that could possibly be valuable lots and lots of people will say well no you shouldn't tax the house that somebody lives in because we make all sorts of exemptions for people's primary residence for tax purposes. And actually, when you think about it, you know, that sounds like a good idea on the surface. But when you think about it, or you go, well, okay, well, what's the difference between my friend who owns a property and my friend who has the same amount of their money invested in their own private business and rents? Why should my renter friend be paying a wealth tax on their business wealth and my home earning friend not be paying you know, the the wealth tax on that wealth, even though they are as wealthy as each other. You know, all of these sorts of kind of complexities start to come out. And then you think, okay, are, are we going to tax people on an individual basis or as couples? And if you go as couples, then, you know, it's, there's just all these kind of extra complications that end up in people trying to work their way around the rules. Yeah, it's, it was fascinating. It was really interesting. And it's funny to me because I've met accountants and business owners over the years who you can tell with some of them that actually it's like the most exciting challenge in the world is, oh, there's some new rules I can try and work my way around. <laughs> and, you know, and sometimes it's just about, hey, look, you're a bit bored. We haven't changed these since the 70s. Here's a new game for you to play. And again, this has come up before, but what I love about these types of conversations, and I hope that students listening realise that the outcome of some of these conversations and projects and things that you're working on is you know, of real life implications for people that they, in their families, in their communities, you know, that are very, very close to them. And, and it's so funny how you might hear things thrown around that you just don't think about as a young person. Like I remember my mum talking about 
like children's allowances and stuff. And, and I just never thought about it as a kid. And now talking to my friends who were maybe made redundant after COVID and mentioning to them, well, I know you don't need that particular tax credit, but did you know that if you, you know, that it's related to paying your um, national insurance? So if you do, et cetera. And, and I feel like there's so many implications to some of these things that are not even about the tax itself or the credit, if we're looking at it the other way around. Sorry, that was a bit mixing my metaphors there. But, you know, um, we're talking about the tax system, if you like. And there, there's also been talk on the podcast about, you know, an economic literacy. And I think this is a big part of that, because while we've got, you know, you guys looking at the tax implications and potential reform or changes, at the other end, people have got to understand, you know, it's it, we're talking about taxing the wealthy in this context. And clearly we would expect if you've got a certain amount of money, you've got an accountant, You've got a lawyer, you've got people who are expert in that field. So that's fine. But then we've got a whole load of people in the middle who may well be impacted, but don't necessarily have those expertise to hand. And and what do we do about making sure that everyone has a certain level of economic literacy, if you like? But it, and, and I'm hoping that if nothing else, you know, from these conversations, it, it you know, maybe parents, teachers and students listening it might go out there and maybe try and find out a little bit more about some of these systems because they do impact us very heavily. Absolutely. And mm. I wanted to ask maybe a bit of a silly question because I personally don't know what this means, but I was intrigued um, with your work, Reserve Bank of Australia, where the market for overnight cash. Now, that throws up all kinds of imagery. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it's not dodgy black market deals or pawnbrokers or anything like that. It's a very specific and very sort of technical aspect of monetary policy. So how banks set interest rates, which is basically controlling the way that the bank, the, the the reserve bank, the central bank lends to other banks and that banks lend to each other um, overnight. And the cash rate, or I think it's called the cash rate here, or the, the sort of target rate for monetary policy that you hear announced on the news after after the Bank of England's had their meeting, that's the, the, the rate that those that the central bank is targeting in this overnight market. And basically, this this is another piece of work that I would say that I'm pretty proud of, although for a completely different reason. And remind me to come back to that if I don't. It, basically, the people within the Reserve Bank where I used to work have, have a set of beliefs about how this market works. But when we started thinking about it, we thought, actually, nobody really knows. You know, we haven't checked that this is how it works. This is just kind of what we what we think and what people who work in private banks have told us. But, you know, they could just be telling us that because we're, because we're the RBA, you know. So we actually dug into the data and and really dug into um, the details about how these overnight trades are made, what time of day they happen, what the interest rate um, that tends to, like, the, that they're being traded for um, happens, usually usually is, like, is it exactly at the, the rate that the central bank is trying to target? One of the interesting things to come out of that paper, actually, was that a lot of the banks weren't really following what we would expect, what weren't doing in terms of going for multi-day loans. So I'm sure that um, any student listening to this podcast would be familiar with the, the, the concept of simple and compound interest. So simple being you just add on the same amount of interest each day and compound being like, okay, the interest that the interest that you had to pay yesterday, we add that onto the, the whole principle of the loan and then we charge, you know, we calculate the interest again and so it starts to compound. And we found to our great surprise that a lot of the banks 
weren't doing that in Australia when a single overnight loan became a multi-day loan. And that was quite a surprise. So there's quite a few things, firstly, about, you know, the, the way that the market worked in terms of the interest rates and also the way that these kind of compound rates were happening. I didn't even, we didn't even think to check for it. It was just something that I kind of built into our code to say, okay, this is one way that my interest might work up. And then suddenly it appeared that all of these banks are lending with simple interest over long periods of time rather than compound interest, which is a bit of a financial stability risk. But So yeah, that was, again, very technical, very specific, but I an interesting piece of work that was useful in a very specific set of circumstances. And the reason why I'd say I'm, I was quite proud of it is because it was a big, one of the pieces of work that I've done with the largest amount of data. So we had... Um, we had a basically the history of the transactions that we thought made up those overnight loans, so the initial loan payment and then the repayment the next day, and that was a very big data set, something like 7 million transactions that we had to kind of like filter through and try and figure out these things look like an overnight loan. This isn't an overnight loan, this will be something else, so we forget about it. Wow, that is a lot of data. And, and also, again, forgive my ignorance, but surely that's then also related to the wider loan market. You know, when the banks start, you know, if they're not charging compound interest in that kind of first stage of money, of monetary transactions, then that potentially has a knock on. And I don't understand enough to know whether it's good or bad, but potentially that has a knock on influence to what happens when they then loan further or sell loans back and forth between banks between countries like the buying and selling of debt i suppose yeah absolutely i mean the the overnight rate or the cash rate that you know that is of interest that the um the central bank sets is kind of the the floor or the basis for a lot of lending like probably most you know the 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 rates that people pay on a mortgage most interest rate loans, all of that sort of stuff, as soon as you, they're not going to be the same number, but as soon as you move that interest rate up or down, then those other rates tend to move in, in sync with that, which is kind of the, the basis of, of monetary policy. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an important market to understand. Yeah, definitely. For a central banker. <laughs> yeah, but also what, uh, this is something that, you know, when we're talking about economic literacy, you know, the buying and selling of government debt and the debt of a country is something that comes up in the front page of newspapers across the world to an audience that, you know, I'm part of that audience that doesn't really understand what it means. And it can be sold as a terrible thing or a brilliant thing with just a little bit of a shift of angle, if you like, from the journalist. One, one of my pet peeves is, is people talking about government debt as if it's the same as a household debt. And it's just, it's, it's just completely without wanting to get too political it's completely un- it's a absolutely terrible comparison you know governments sorry households don't have the ability to kind of raise money by taxing other people they don't have the ability to to borrow at at almost zero percent you know it's just a completely different question to what a household faces and i understand that people kind of want to make that translation to people who don't have an economics background but then what happens is that, you know, anybody looking at that article could quite rightly draw the conclusion, wow, the government's got all of this debt. I could never cope with all of that much debt. So what's the government doing? You know, it's... It is, and it, and it lends a certain narrative. And and I guess I don't think you need to be political about it, because in my lifetime, there's certainly been every government that's been in place. I think there's been, you know, <laughs> there's been a narrative around that debt in one direction or another. I think that everyone um, is involved with it. And it's, it's one of the things actually that I love about the Discover Economics campaign, if you like, is that 
you know, even beyond just trying to encourage more diversity into economics as a field, but just really encouraging that economic literacy, I think, across the population is is an incredibly positive thing for everyone. I think I'm sure it would make your life easier as an economist <laughs> if, if you knew that everyone had that kind of base level. <laughs> Um, it would save me a few awkward conversations with my family who still don't seem to <laughs> know what it is I do, which is fine. Oh, well, don't look. Of being an economist, I think, is never really being able to explain your job to anyone. <laughs> 100%. I mean, I, look, I work in digital skills and I still, like, my family still don't really understand what I do. They do know that I fix all their issues, though. They know that I'm basically IT support for everyone. So there's that. There's that element. In terms then of your experience in the workplace, like you've, you've worked in some very, let's say, traditional, large, you know, economic organisations, financial institutions. What has that experience been like? Because something that I remember as a student, I certainly as a school, you know, a school pupil rather than a university student is that I had no idea what an office environment was like, never mind the differences between different industries. And as a student at university, I, I was lucky enough to work in office jobs during the day and various other waitressing and bar work at other times. It can be a little bit of a culture shock, I think, when you come into that office environment. But then I think as you get older, you also see that there are differences between industries and not just what's expected and what you wear and what you know what what's the style guide for each of the, of the companies that you're going into, but beyond that, just the culture. So it'd be interesting to hear, you know, what has been your experience in some of these really big kind of traditional organizations? Yeah, I I mean, I also had no idea what to expect because neither of my parents worked in an office. My my mum's a music teacher and my dad is a pharmacist, so they've got very sort of like different lives to somebody going into an office, you know, nine to five each day. I wasn't familiar with the whole, you know, full-time work, fairly defined hours, take your lunch kind of aspect of things. My introduction to it was, again, doing an internship um, at uni while I was an undergrad. I did an internship at the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is the Australian consumer regulator. I, I can't think off the top of my head what the equivalent is here, but there's, I think maybe here they're broken up into lots of different industries, whereas the ACCC just kind of covers everything. All right. Okay. Yeah. My first experience of kind of a, a big policy, well, um, sort of public institution. And then the RBA was, was a similar, well, probably on a larger scale, you know, like one building with a thousand people in it and a very kind of, a, a very conservative in the sense of kind of slow to take on change institution, which I think a lot of kind of public places where people, sorry, public is in public institutions, where people, where a lot of economics graduates end up working, you know, so here like the civil service would, or the Bank of England would be equivalent. A lot of them are sort of just very sort of slow moving institutions. Economics has an environment, a, a reputation as being a very male dominated environment. So that that has been my experience, I'll be honest, like going through I was probably one of maybe my sort of undergrad economics classes would have been maybe a third girls. And then by the time I got to my final year, we do sort of a an optional fourth year in Australia, which is like your honours year. Um, it's, so honours is not like here, you know, honours is sort of like your mark. And in Australia, it's actually like you, you've chosen to take on an honours year. So you either have your normal degree or your honours degree. That sounds like it's the same as Scotland. I think we've got right. a very right. similar system. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there were 10 girls in a class of 40 and often I would be in, um, you know, classes where I was the only girl and it's 
and I think probably going into the Reserve Bank, the, the numbers are about the same. So maybe about a quarter girls, women, I guess I should say by that stage. And it can be because economics can be quite sort of fact dominated. I think that people can get an impression that it's it's very sort of straight talking and very direct. And if you don't have the facts at your fingertips, then you might as well just not really um, you know, you've got you're not going to really have anything particular to contribute to the, to the discussion. And I, I have a, a small, uh, just a bit of a sense that maybe women in general are less comfortable operating in that environment than, than men, just because, I don't know, we, we, we bring up what girls... Socialised differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm hoping that students listening are thinking, are now thinking, that's not my experience. But I, I mean, for that. me, it was. Like I was definitely socialized that way as a kid. And and it's interesting to me, a lot of women my age, like I was diagnosed with ADHD last year. And that's a lot. And a, a lot of women my generation are being diagnosed now because it was the behavior that people were trained to pick up on was socialized out of us very early. We weren't allowed to act that way. Mm. And it's interesting to hear you talk about that, you know. So I just want, I want students listening to realize that we're not saying that that is, you know, that women are inherently like that one way or the other. Absolutely. We're hoping that's not your experience. Absolutely. Certainly, there's a lot of women, like, say, my my generation who, yeah, like, maybe would have acted a certain way or would have felt comfortable in that environment, but weren't really allowed, if that mm. makes... I mean, I know I'm sure it makes yeah. sense to you, Helen, but, yeah. Absolutely. I'm hoping that this is so weird and alien to students listening that we don't have to worry about them. But yes, I totally understand. I don't know if it's helpful, but I, I found I almost got myself into a habit of talking over people mm. in certain environments, which sounds like a terrible thing to have to do. But like I was in an environment where I would constantly find myself being talked over by usually older male colleagues. And I thought, okay, well, I'm constantly giving into this. You know, I'm letting myself be talked over because I stop. And they keep going. So I kind of got myself into a habit of doing this sort of quite antisocial thing. And it felt very uncomfortable to me of continuing to talk, just kind of pushing back on it. And that was kind of my way of getting through some of those kind of awkward situations. And it, and it's I maybe that's helpful if anybody feels like they have been socialized in this way and therefore they can't. Like if it's a learnt it's a learnt behavior, so you can kind of learn your way out of it in some in some ways. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. And that's really interesting. Now I work I'm from Aberdeen, so I have worked in the oil industry and in quite a lot of other male kind of dominated environments. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I find myself sometimes taking on certain behaviours. And what was always interesting to me is how much the men I worked with didn't care if I acted like like they weren't offended or the thing that I was worried about, like, oh I can't speak over people or I can't do this because you're socialized to think that that is just rude mm. they didn't care or didn't notice <laughs> that I was particularly being rude and I, I'd be interested to hear what your experience was like how did people react when you were doing this thing that obviously took a big effort on your part yeah what, it's, what was the response it's really interesting I've never thought about it but I don't think anybody reacted I don't think anybody kind of pulled me aside afterwards and said hey that was a bit rude to be you know talking over Peter like that not not actually Peter just saying for so you know no, nobody ever did that I think it was a lot more of a big deal for me than it was for anybody else yeah and I, I don't want to paint paint my you know old workplaces or environments as as like terrible places to be I don't feel like I suffered in any particular way I don't feel like I you know was really heavily discriminated against in like very serious ways but I think these are things that that people 
don't like are not prepared for like younger women in particular are not prepared for about you know office environments or workplace environments but it's interesting because like you said it's not like it's one I don't think anyone on the other side of it does anything on purpose like the people who are talking over you or people who've talked over me they're not they're not thinking I am going to talk over you no no. that's just a natural thing Mm. And this, the experience I've had, because I, I don't want to, to talk about anyone else's experience, but I think I probably, you could probably pinpoint some areas where not necessarily I was discriminated against, but I definitely lost out, let's say. Yes. And it wasn't because anyone was deliberately trying to make me lose out. It's because the way everyone acts and is trained to act was just the way it was. And if you, Absolutely. if no one stands up and kind of, and actually there's an example that I was very, very lucky that one of my bosses, I would never have known that I was getting paid, I, I find out later, £5,000 a year less than all of my male colleagues who did the same job as me. And I would never have known. And luckily my boss, <laughs> and it was a year when none of my colleagues got a pay rise. And he literally just said, I'm giving you a £5,000 pay rise. And everyone knew I got that pay rise. And they were like, yeah, well, it brings her in line with the rest of you. So shut up. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it, um, But it was nice that it was nice that I wasn't the one who had to bring it up. I, I mean, mm. it does anger me a little bit because I had been working there for a few years. It's, mm. you know, I'd missed out. Yeah, it wasn't just but, the five pounds of that year that you'd missed. It was lots of other years as well. Yeah, mm. and you, and look, maybe the first few years I wasn't as experienced. So, you know, there's always those arguments to make. But what I think is really important for people to remember, especially when we're talking about Discover Economics as a project, if you like, is that it's not just about the person and, you know, the person who's, let's say, again discriminated against is a strong term but it's not necessarily that person who's in that position that needs to take all the action it's that everyone else around you needs to take the action sometimes they just take it for you because you don't know you're missing out absolutely i mean as as an example of that i i found i only really think about this in on reflection you know one of the first things that my manager said to me when i started working at the reserve bank was you know, there's heaps and heaps of extracurricular stuff that you can do. It's really great. There's so, and, it, and it's true. Like it was a great environment to work in. Getting to know people was wonderful. But remember that this is not what your performance is being assessed on. You know, like don't let that distract from your job. But it it just happened that I would kind of get dragged into being president of the cycling club, or I'd be, you know, like going getting involved with like various workplace sports and doing extra stuff, kind of training up new staff and that sort of thing, and. I, I remember thinking, this is too much, you know, I need to start saying no to things. And yet at one point, a fairly senior person came to my desk and said, oh, we've got this kind of staff experience committee that we're setting up to make sure that everybody's okay. And, you know, like feeling satisfied with their jobs and everything like that. We'd love to, you know, would you be involved? And I, I said, you know, I, I don't, I've got enough on my plate. Like I actually don't really want to be involved with that. And he said, oh, but we, you know, we think you'd be really good at it. And and I just, I thought, well, yeah, of course, I kind of have to do this because this is a senior person who's asking me this. The fact is, unfortunately, and, and this is not necessarily, I, I'm not saying that I was being, you know, like the, the victim of discrimination in this situation, but because, and apart from anything else, this committee was like quite gender balanced. But the, the the research shows that women are more likely to get pulled into that sort of situation. They get pulled into all the kind of staff experience things, everything from organising a card and a going away present to, you know, doing these kind of long-term committees that don't become a part of their job performance. You know, these, these kinds of little creeping small things that actually in themselves are not necessarily a big deal but just kind of add up 
to women having less time to, to spend on their job than men do. Yeah. It's the emotional labour argument, isn't it, that we talk about in households? Emotional labour, yeah. But it, but it happens in work environments all the time. Absolutely. I really recognise some of the things you're talking about. And it's so hard to say no, but you're right. It doesn't have, a, one, it doesn't have a, an impact on your finances at the end of the month, but it does make the stuff that you're trying to do for your job a million times harder because of yeah. it's, it's always more time consuming. And, and also just talking about things like neurodiversity, something I hadn't realised until my diagnosis with ADHD is I've always felt like I took so long to get my brain out of one project and into another. And I think everyone can relate to that. I don't think it's necessarily only an ADHD thing, but certainly it's particularly strong if you if you have ADHD. But the good news is there's good medication, guys. Um, <laughs> but, but that's something that, again, doesn't get thought of when you're being you know, you're being volunteered for that kind of thing. It's not just the time it takes to do it. Mm. It's the time it takes to get you out of that mindset that you're dealing with that project into a different project. Mm. And I think mm. everybody has, has challenges in that way. And I think definitely those people who are not neurotypical, let's say, might have even bigger challenges. And I think that in the workplace, you know, there's a definitely a mixed bag in terms of the types of institutions that are good at picking up on those types of things and the support that people need. And I bet, because I'm just thinking back to my colleague who was, she was of Indian descent and the amount of things people tried to rope her into, would you like to be on this diversity panel? And she's like, well, no, what? Number one, I don't want to represent my entire race. And number two, I know it's a lot of work. And also it's putting a lot of emotional labour on the people that actually are may have been victim of certain types of discrimination, yet you're asking them to fix the problem. And I think that happens to people with disabilities, you know, LGBTQ, like anyone who's in that position. So it's something to look out for, I think, definitely as you go into the workplace. I'm really glad you said that. And and good for your boss for pointing that out. I think every boss should remind us of that. Like each year. She, she, she was very yeah. switched on. She was, yeah, knew exactly what to look for. And I, I you know, <laughs> should have listened to her more carefully, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite a while ago now. I don't want to paint the impression that uh, I used to work in this incredibly sexist, misogynistic environment. Yeah, I think, I think that's the thing. A lot of these experiences are not because necessarily, like you say, you work in an environment that is hugely misogynistic or hugely like racist or discriminatory in in any way it's a lot of the stuff is is very unconscious like you know we talk about unconscious bias and that's one of the reasons i think diversity in any sector is so important because the more diversity you have in a sector the more it kind of wipes out that unconscious bias just by merit of there being a mixture of more people in the room you know it, it and that kind of brings the balance out without people having to work so hard or try so hard to to kind of get your brain around it, I suppose. Absolutely. I think that's really important, you know, like if you go from being the only woman in your team who's getting saddled with all this sort of emotional office labour and therefore, you know, doesn't produce as much or has to work way, way harder than everybody else to be able to produce this the same amount of material, you know, you can kind of imagine how this, uh, you know, that translates into a gender pay gap where people are paying, you know, women on average I think it's uh, 27% less than men. That might be an Australian number rather than a UK number, but, you know, like a substantial amount for doing the same job. And this, this is these just kind of like little things are how that sort of thing happens. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. A little bit more diversity so that you're not the one 
person of a, a black minority ethnic background that has to kind of speak for everybody and educate people who are not from a, a BAME background about how, it, you know, how they could change their behaviour. You know, again, having a just a bit more diversity would be probably actually take care of a lot more of that. 100%. God, I'm just laughing because the thought of anyone thinking that in my past work life that I would have been the voice of women in any environment. Like, I don't know. I don't think anyone wanted that. <laughs> I represent all women. <laughs> this woman will karaoke without any alcohol. <laughs> all like that. <laughs> See, the sad thing is, though, then you don't have an excuse for when you're terrible. Like, it's nice to be able to stand up without a drink, but... Pff, the next day, no excuse. Um, actually, <laughs> unintentionally brings me back to your singing. So tell me, how does that work? Because you are a professional singer. We're not just talking about, you know, I like to sing at the weekends with my friends. Like you're a professional singer. Yeah. How does that work in terms of, so unlike the normal question that is quite sexist of, what's your work-life balance like with your family yeah. and your job? What's your work-life balance like with your two kind of passions career-wise? Yes, I mean it's tricky sometimes. I mean I'm lucky that generally with, in the time that I've been working with LSE, I've been working part time and I've had a lot of flexibility, which is really really important because for me now stuff comes up randomly during the week. You know, somebody might say, "Hey, can you sing at a funeral?" You know, in three days' time at, at two p.m. and you know you sort of have to be able to say, "Well, yes, I can be there," or "No, I can't," straight away. And if you had Kind of, if I had to find working office hours that I couldn't change, that would be a lot more difficult. Um, and in in it's been a challenge, I'll be honest, in looking for because I, I I need to find work that's part time for the most part and that's quite flexible. And I've definitely lost out on positions that I've interviewed for for that reason in the past. And I also, I mean, when you were talking about sort of switching attention from task to task, I've definitely been there. You know, I, I was I was working full time at the RBA and I happened to be singing at a place just around the corner and I would basically spend all of my evenings in rehearsal. So I'd go from, you know, economics mode at 5.30pm and then it'd be at, re- be at rehearsal by quarter to six, but it's not that simple. You just can't get your brain to shift that much that that quickly so yeah that's that's something that I I have had to be a little bit more disciplined about about trying to create a bit more of a gap between between my kind of economics thinking and my and my music thinking because there's not a lot of overlap let's be honest <laughs> yeah but, but what's interesting about that is um like the physicality of it because knowing um other singers and how physical it is and how stress plays on your physicality and and how you get how you get the sound out <laughs> and also how you avoid injuries, you know, to your throat and, you know, that tension obviously can be, you know, could set you back months. Let's say if you were to, like you said, rush from one thing to another, it's been a really stressful day and you don't give your your body, not not even just your brain, but your body the time to let go of the tension yeah. before you go into rehearsal, you risk injury. And and I bet that people think about that, you know, in terms of, let's say, more traditional athletics and, and that kind of thing and how, you know, running marathons gets, you know, lots of business people run marathons. And I have yet to, good on you, high five, well done, I'll cheer you on. But but this is, it's not dissimilar. Like, you know, that kind of being able to fully let go of one thing or you wouldn't be able to do the other. And the reason I bring it up as well is when I was teaching, I found that more and more young people coming through and doing the courses that I was delivering had a, a certain level of stress and anxiety that I never had to experience at that age. And, and I wonder if that, if the teachers obviously, you know, pick up on that now. And 
the importance of having something, whether it is a kind of dual career, like like you've kind of uh, you've got for yourself, but that kind of making sure that no matter what career or studies or area you go into, having that thing that helps you to switch, not just mentally, but physically as well, uh, and how beneficial that can be to your mental health, but also to your success, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that the comparison with sport is really, really relevant because, again, this is a very, very common thing for people in offices, particularly in a place like Sydney, which is a very fit and active place. People go out and play sport at lunchtime. And it's not just, it's, you know, I don't think people think about it this way, but it's definitely not just the physical exercise that they're doing. It's the mental break. It's like the, you know, going away from your office or leaving your desk and going and doing something else that requires your full attention at the time is really, really important. It gives you the kind of mental break that you need to actually be productive in your in your work for the rest of the day. So for me, like, you know, singing is a bit different, but not actually that different because my singing is kind of my mental break from my economics and my economics is my mental break from my singing. And I've been through times of my life when there's not been much room for anything else, but I can manage it because there's enough break. You know, you don't necessarily, I think it's fair to say that there's at least one scientific study that suggests it's not rest that you need so much as a break from what you're doing. Um, and that kind of that mental involvement of just kind of, you know, I, I'm just committing myself to either, you know, like doing this drill the best I possibly can or like singing this piece the best I possibly can or, you know, like concentrating on the ball. I'm going to I'm just going to throw everything I've got into this match right now and just forget about, you know, the really frustrating email exchange I have with my boss just then. It's it's really, really important stuff. And, and the, the injury side of things is, is absolutely right. I mean, I, I, you know, you do feel like a complete diva sometimes, but I, I found myself in a situation in work occasionally where a lot of people were whispering all the time and whispering is really bad for your voice. Um, and so I just had to be like, I'm sorry, can we not whisper? Because it's just, you know, I'm just going to destroy myself. And yeah. Helps you speak over people if you're not whispering. None of this yeah. being quieter. We all need to get yeah. louder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That ties it quite in. So I know I need to let you go, but again, there's I always get to this point and I know I say it to everyone, but there's so many more things that, that we could dig into here, especially about that kind of, like I said, that dual career that you have, um, dual as in D-U-E-L, not dual as in jewels of the Nile. <laughs> Sorry, my accent. <laughs> but just to finish off, what advice would you give? Um, and actually, there's been a lot of advice already, but what advice would you give to, let's say, teachers or parents who want to help steer um, the children in their life towards economics, if if that seems like it might be um, something that'd be good for them? What advice would you give them? I think I, I probably you don't you want to sort of overemphasize the role of maths because you can definitely be a, a really really good economist without having a lot of kind of you know, without being able to set up a complicated maths equation and solve it. Um, and it probably is a little bit overemphasized in the profession, unfortunately. But if you want to do any study, then you do need to have a bit of maths behind you at a sort of universities, particularly at a master's level. You know, everything sort of the more years you spend studying economics at university, the more everything you do becomes a mathematical equation. And there are definitely, I think people get intimidated, unnecessarily intimidated when they see a lot of algebra on a page. It's not the algebra that's actually important. It's it's what it's standing in for. It's the ideas that it's standing in for. So if there's somebody who really wants to get involved in economics, then like you definitely need to study. It's definitely worthwhile studying some maths. In terms of getting people interested, I think I don't even know where to start. Like, obviously, I'm biased. You know, I'm, I'm an economist. Therefore, I think what I do is interesting. But I just think that there are so many interesting situations in the world in which economics is a useful way of looking at trying to find a solution. I think a lot of people's concept of economics is the sort of 
economics 101 lesson, which is, you know, the market works perfectly. The government should just get out of the road and let everybody do what they want, you know, free markets, et cetera. And that's sort of like lesson one, literally lesson one of economics. And then everything else that you get from there on is actually more complicated and more interesting and more useful, which is like, okay, well, things just don't really work that way. You know, there's all these kind of assumptions that this sort of free market aspect um, idea rests on and most of them fail in real life. Your economics teachers can definitely get into that in a much less uh, (laughs) convoluted detail than I can. But I think, you know, think about if people are concerned about climate change, I think that there's a lot that economics can, can really help out in just thinking about the problem, thinking about the problem that, everybody's doing this thing emitting carbon emissions for free you know it doesn't cost anybody anything to well i mean it costs me to take a flight but i don't have to pay extra for the fact that the carbon emissions from that flight go on to you know contribute to the stock of carbon in the atmosphere which contributes to all of these like really detrimental effects and just think just that 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 idea of but this doesn't cost anybody to do it, so that's why they do it so freely. You know, it's not the same case that if it costs them a bit more, they wouldn't do it. But sure, a lot of people would do it a lot less. I think that's, you know, that for me was a real hook when I got into sort of thinking about environmental economics. A lot of this stuff happens for free and it probably couldn't. And how do we think about that as a society? Well, you know, the standard from a um, climate change point of view, you know, carbon tax or carbon cap and trade scheme or that sort of thing, you know, these are the uh, the sort of solutions that economics tends to put out. But I think that the the process of thinking about what, what the problem really is and what sort of a solution, you know, you might think about is, is where economics starts to get really interesting. That is really interesting. And I, and I love what you said there, because it means that if a student listening to this is thinking about, like you said, that, that carbon emission doesn't cost me anything but I am part of that economy I'm part of the economy of carbon emissions and so what is my part is you know a useful exercise definitely thank you so much Helen I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us and and like with all of our guests it's so valuable for students and teachers to hear things from lots of different perspectives I didn't even get to ask you if you surf because I've just moved to Cornwall and it would be interesting to get some surf tips and you know, no judgment if you don't, but every other Australian I know does surf. Just saying. Oh dear. <laughs> I don't want to let the team down. I can I can do a boogie boarding maybe, but I, I did grow up on the surf coast, but not not proper stand up surfing. Alas. Don't worry. I'm, you're, you're always going to be better than me, I imagine, at this point. But um, again, thank you so much. We'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Yeah, that was lovely. It's been my pleasure. It's lovely to chat. Thank you. And that's that for that episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to get in touch with any questions, please visit our website, discovereconomics.co.uk, where you'll also find loads of useful resources. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review. Also remember to subscribe through whichever podcast app you're using so that you always get any new episodes as soon as they're published. See you on the next episode. 